Today's show brought to you in part by our friends at the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund. We're very proud to be partnered with the KTDF Purses in Kentucky, are powered by the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund, and have led to an incredible enhancement to the Kentucky racing scene. KTDF dollars in purses are for Kentucky bred horses only. So breeding in Kentucky is the best way to maximize profits and return on racing and breeding investments. Because of the benefits from the KTDF, Churchill Downs Racing and Kentucky Racing as a whole, continue to be on an incredible upward trajectory. For more information, please go to www.inthemoneypodcast.com slash KTDF. Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players podcast. Peter Thomas Fornital from the Brooklyn Bunker once again. Very happy to be back with an early week show for you. We got a couple of guests. First, courtesy of the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund. We're going to visit with Jonathan Wong to hear about his operation in Kentucky this winter and decisions that led him to relocating at least a big part of his business to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Then we've got Marshall Graham, and we've got lots to talk about with Marshall, including a new podcast series, the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge plays, and a little horse named after me. We're going to get to all of this stuff right after this. Today's show also brought to you by our newest partners from Century Mile. Do not miss the standard bread action at Century Mile on Thanksgiving Day, November 24th for the National Drivers' Championship. The card kicks off at 615 Mountain, where eight drivers are competing from across Canada to win their way to the World Driving Championship. Drivers earn their way into the finals by finishing first or second in their respective regional driving championships. The winner will have the opportunity to represent Canada in the 2023 World Driving Championship to be held in Germany in conjunction with the World Trotting Conference. We'll have coverage of the big night across the In The Money Media Network with Edison on the show next week, as well as special coverage over on Edison's First Over podcast. Remember, Thanksgiving night, big stuff happening from our friends at Century Mile. First up on the show, we have a returning guest. He was on with us, oh gosh, it was a couple of years ago now, to talk about one of the races in the Stronic 5 sequence out at Golden Gate. Golden Gate being a place he's been associated with in the past, but these days I'm starting to associating, associate him with racing in the state of Kentucky as well. Been very active at the claim box. Jonathan Wong, welcome back to the In The Money Airways. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be back. Let's talk about what's been going on with your operation. I think I, like many people, think of you as a, a, a California guy, but who also, you know, I've seen you run horses all over the country, but it feels like more than ever you've been very active in Kentucky of late. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Obviously, we started out in California. Um, right now we're kind of in the process of slowly opening up shop in Kentucky and trying to make Kentucky our main base. What went into that decision? What 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 made you uh, make the move or think about make the move? Um, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, the cost in California is just extremely high right now. I mean, workers' comp, feed, everything like that. I mean, the lack of races. You only run three days a week. Uh, lack of being able to get horses into the races in, in California, mainly in Northern California, where we're mostly based out of. I mean, the money in Kentucky is a lot better. I mean, you have opportunities if you're willing to ship to run seven days a week, you know, so you have options. If a race doesn't fill, you can go to 
several different racetracks within a couple hours of you to run. It makes sense. And what have you been looking for in particular, at, you know, without giving it all away, of course, at the horses you've been you've been reaching for at, at, in Kentucky? What's the profile of a horse you want to have in your barn for this upcoming project? Well, I mean, we're just trying to find horses that look like that have conditions and fit the races that are being ridden at Churchill and Turfway. So, I mean, we can hopefully, because we have a lot of younger horses that we're going to be bringing back as well. So we want to have some horses that are running to give us a chance to get our name out there as well. How much does the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund and the extra purse available for Kentucky breads play into it? Is that something you're, you're giving an extra eye into, I would imagine? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I train a lot for Tommytown Thoroughbreds, and they buy a bunch of uh, Kentucky bred fillies out of the yearling sale, so we have a lot of Kentucky breads. We were fortunate enough to win an allowance race at Keeneland the other day. It was a $110,000 pot. You know, I mean, so that what she made was more than the person being in California. Right. Right. It, it 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 starts to become a pretty logical. What can you tell us about your plans for for Turfway? I mean, you, how, how many head are you looking to have there? Um, we're hopeful. We've got 15 stalls right now at Turfway. We're hopeful. We have a couple of stalls at the training center. The old it's called uh, Trackside Churchill. So we'll be training out of both spots. Um, hopefully we'll be able to get up to about 30 in total in Kentucky and just little by little just lower the numbers in California and just have a lesser presence in California. It's good to know you're still thinking of supporting the racing there in, in some way. I mean, I do I do love California racing, but I understand from a business point of view about uh, making the switch that you're making or certainly transitioning to having more horses in, in the Commonwealth. What about lifestyle-wise for you? How different is it to be, uh, to, to be based in Kentucky, especially through the winter? Have you done that before? I was at Pennsylvania for a while during the winter. I mean, it's obviously a complete... 180 degree difference from California to here but I mean it's awesome I mean it sucks because my family's still out in California so hopefully we'll be able to get them out of to Kentucky soon I mean the snow is always fun the kids my kids have never been in snow they're young so <laughs> they'll have fun once they get out here I mean go play in the snow and hang out and I mean it's a nice it's a lot better lifestyle out in Lexington for the family and everything as well you know I mean and in California it's just horrible I mean for owners to when you have horses that you enter for a month six weeks two months i can't get in a race and races don't fill i mean you're stuck on an island there you either have to sell the horse or you just sit and wait i mean it's not fair for the for the owners so this has been a pretty easy sell to to your existing owners or are you looking for more new owners as well no, I mean, yeah, it's been, I mean, a lot of my owners have been on board. Like I said, Tommy Town, Thurber, they've been on board. Brett Malmstrom, Scott Herbertson. I mean, Clay Sides, I have several that have been on, on board and really open to the idea. And we've been claim, trying to claim horses out here in Kentucky. I mean, yeah, we obviously, I mean, if we could be fortunate enough to pick up some more clients out here, that'd be awesome. I want to talk to you a little bit about your background. I think, you know, a lot of people know about the prolific amount of um, winning you've done out in California, but how did you get involved in the first place? Where, where did you, where did you come from as it were? Uh, yeah, my mom and I, we lived in San Francisco. We had a family friend. He owned a little mom and pop grocery store. He owned a couple of horses at the time. And he's like, Hey, one of my horses are running at Bay Meadows in San Mateo, which was open. If you don't want to come out. So we went to the races that day. And pretty much from then it was, 
game over, I was hooked. <laughs> and was it always in the side of taking care of the horses, or did you ever uh, enjoy yourself trying to pick the winners of the races at the windows, like so many of us? Oh, I'm the I'm a horrible handicapper. I just like to watch races, and I I I love watching the horses run. I mean, they're just they're amazing animals. Did you end up apprenticing under somebody else, as is usually the case? Like, what were your first jobs at the racetrack? Yeah, I worked for um, Art Sherman, Kristen Mohall, and then I, most of my time I worked for John Martin. I worked as his assistant for about ten years. Oh, you so had that's to learn. Where, I mean, had to learn yeah. a lot from that crew. Yeah, he was he was a great horseman. That's great stuff. Well, what about what you got going on in your barn right now? Any horses in particular that you're looking forward to run running back? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see some of these horses that we claimed out here in Kentucky, see them run back for the first time, hopefully at the end of Churchill or the beginning of Turfway. I mean, that's it's always exciting when you get new horses in and you try new stuff, and hopefully it works for the best. You have a great mark improving horses first time out. Where would you say most of the improvement comes from? What are the kinds of things you're looking for that you think, hey, maybe we can do a little bit better with this horse? Well, it's not so much doing a little bit, doing better than the other person. It's just like maintaining the horse. I mean, and just taking good care of the horse and try to change a little things with the speed program, it's dental work, it's feet. I mean, if a horse has ulcers, I mean, try different equipment on a horse and just try to get a, the horse to run a little bit better. What kind of a team do you have around you for this Kentucky project, or are you still in the process of figuring that out? No, I have pretty everybody that works for me right now in Kentucky has come from California with me. So everybody that has worked from us previously, they would come over with us from California. We got a couple more guys coming from California this week with the load of horses. So, I mean, we have a really good crew. I mean, our crew is like our family, you know. I spend a lot of time with them, and they're great guys. I mean, they're the ones who make the show run. That has to be a huge advantage to have a team you're familiar with. I was envisioning, you know, mixing and matching and having to find new people to fit into old roles. But, I mean, to be able to have that comfort level, I mean, I imagine there's some people you've worked with for years on the team. Yeah, I mean, one of the guys who's with me right now in Kentucky, he actually was the first guy who taught me how to groom a horse with Art Sherman when I worked for him. He taught me how to bandage horses and everything. So I've known him for, like, like 17 years of my life, you know? So him and I, we, like, we're practically, I mean, we're like brothers. Yeah, I mean, I've known him for that long. We've been together the whole time. He worked with me at John Martin when I worked for John Martin, and he came over and worked for me. Like when I first started, so I mean, he's been, we've been like pretty much together, like I said, for 17 years. So I mean, he's like my right hand man. I could definitely see that establishing a like familial type connection. And and what about in terms of who gets on the horses in the morning? Is that somebody you've been able to bring in from California as well? Yeah, um, my rider, he, he was with me down at Del Mar and he came back here as well with us. And then we have another, he has actually has another relative that he's going to bring over from Arizona to come and work for us as well. And I have another guy from California who's going to come out. Ties run deep. Do you still see yourself maybe trying to send out a few horses for a big meet like Del Mar? Or what do you, what do you think ultimately your California string is going to look like? Yeah, I mean, definitely we're going to run horses. I mean, we're still going to keep a little presence in California. It's just going to be... Uh, a lot lesser of a number than we normally have had out there. 
Well, Jonathan, appreciate you coming on the show today and uh, giving us some time. We're going to be watching this project with great interest, and we'd love to check in with you at some point during the winter to see how everything's going. You got it, my man. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Next up on the show, happy to welcome in a returning guest, a many-time returning guest here to do a number of things. We're eventually going to get to talking about the Breeders' Cup betting challenge place. He's a former champion of that event and somebody who's so data-centric in his approach to life that I really wanted to hear what he had to say about the release of those plays. But he's also here to talk about a partnership that we've cooked up. Uh, it's going to be, we don't have the title yet. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, you know, mince words about that. We're still working on it. It's going to be some variation on the Marshall Graham interviews and here to talk about them. Marshall Graham, Marshall, what's going on? Thanks for having me on Pete. Appreciate it. Let's talk about where this Marshall Graham interviews series, as we're going to call it as a, you know, a tentative title, how it got its origin. Where, where did you get the idea to, to, to put these interviews together? So I have not decided to, to throw my hat in the ring and, and do a podcast of my own. Uh, seems like we've got plenty of horse racing podcasts, but but I did um, do interviews as a part of my horse racing class that I taught in the spring of 2022. So this is the third time I've taught the economics of racetrack wagering markets. Uh, in fact, I think you've been out to, to teach my class at least one of those times. So um, this time I taught it a little bit differently. I embraced the technology that I picked up during the pandemic and I, um, I pre-recorded my lectures and then I pre-recorded 12 interviews that I did with uh, people uh, on particular racing topics, uh, trainers, uh, jockeys, uh, uh, handicappers, kind of experts in different areas that I wanted to cover. And uh, I'm making these interviews available to our uh, ITM listeners as part of uh, a podcast series. I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty proud of them. Uh, I enjoyed sitting that down to talk with people. Uh, uh, I, I talked with uh, speed figure maker Randy Moss and Dick Girardi. Uh, I talked with trainer Tom Van Berg, jockey Kendrick Carmouche, legendary handicapper Maury Wolf, Bill Ziemba with the Dr. Z system, who's a management of the, the late Bill Ziemba, management professor in Vancouver, whose sort of uh, works and uh, collections of papers were sort of some of the framework that some of the big betting teams used. I uh, talked with our own Sean Borman and Nick Tambro. Talk with Travis Stone, uh, race caller at Churchill Downs, Liz Crow, super agent. Uh, and so, again, I'm really excited. I was really proud of these interviews I did and excited to share them um, with your listeners. And again, I, I think my students enjoyed them. I'm, I hope that uh, all 74 of them uh, listen to them as required. Uh, but again, I do think uh, I do think they were a lot of fun to do. And uh, again, I hope your listeners enjoy them few follow-ups. Let's start with the class itself. I mean, that sounds like a pretty successful in the sense of, of attended class. How has the, the racetrack economics course been received by, by students and by your, your fellow faculty members? Well, it was very enjoyable to teach. I first taught it in the spring of 2017 and had 35 students in it. It's a half class. And so it uh, it only is worth two credits. And so in these two credit courses that we offer in economics, we have a chance to sort of explore topics that wouldn't be considered a full field level course. So we have like, uh, you know, we have classes on uh, particular small topics like economic history of a certain subregion. Uh, my wife teaches economics of inequality. Uh, we, we've taught economics of education, a lot of things that, that don't quite fit 
that we don't want to quite fit in the full semester. So I thought, you know, why not teach a course that's uh, on on horse racing, but related enough to economics, finance, and psychology that uh, that we could call an econ course. And look, there's there's so much that's taught at colleges right now that uh, that uh, you know I wonder how practical they are. So I figure, why the hell not? Why can't I teach a horse racing course? <laughs> so you know, I look at the topics, and and so you know, here's the the sort of list of topics I covered. I made them sound fancier than they probably were, but market efficiency, how smart is the competition, the role of information, what we can learn from the tote board, the quest for value, finding meaning and probabilities, uh, how fast is the race, a deep dive into speed figures, an econometric model of pace and track bias, um, angles, patterns, and trips, small sample size decision-making. So I did, you know, I, I, I tried to incorporate a lot of things we do in handicapping into uh, statistics into psychology, into decision-making, into some broader topics that we cover in economics. But, you know, ultimately, look, we handicapped races. The class met every Friday, and we had a race of the week handicapping contest. So where students would, uh, you know, pick their horses NHC style and get points win place. And then we'd watch a race, and it had the atmosphere of an OTB. Um, (laughs) And so it was a, a lot of fun. And this year, the way I sort of flipped the classroom and recorded everything the classroom experience was I would answer questions. We'd go through races. Uh, you know, we, we'd bring in some guest speakers. Uh, you know, it was really interactive. So I really enjoyed teaching it the way I did. In part, I had to teach it on Friday afternoons, which wasn't ideal, but I had to teach on Friday afternoons because our racing schedule, especially in the winter, has gotten so contracted that there isn't good racing on Tuesday, Thursday afternoon, especially Thursday. And so, you know, I'm an Oaklawn guy. When Oaklawn went to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, I moved the class to Friday afternoon. So instead of being able to spend my Friday afternoons like I usually would or would try to at Oakland Park, I was in front of my students dissecting races from Oakland Park. Not too bad. I, I got to tell you, Marshall, I have a feeling half the audience is now thinking of uh, re-enlisting in, in college just to take this course. Could be a Rodney Dangerfield situation. Well, I had a student, Patrick Reddick, who I'm very proud of, but he's a He's a rising senior econ and business major. Uh, he enjoyed the class so much, he ended up walking hots for Al Stahl this summer, Amazing. living in the tack room at Saratoga. And so I do worry that his parents are going to hunt me down at graduation and, and strangle me as a result. But he's going to be fine. He's doing it. You know, he's going to get his master's in accounting. He's going to be successful. And he loved his summer at Saratoga. So, you know, hopefully I don't lead too many of them astray. Hopefully, them, you know, a lot of them will, will you know, will forget about racing, uh, you know, go to work, be successful. And at some point I hope they, they look back and as they have more sort of free and leisure time, uh, uh, get more interested in racing and, and come back to handicapping. I love, I love the idea of this. And I like the cross pollination between the way you look at the world and the way that economics encourages people to look at the world and the racetrack business. I mean, surely this this cuts both ways, right? Where the racetrack is an interesting laboratory for a lot of these economic ideas. And at the same time, the racing business, I think, could use more time thinking about the world in terms of some harder, um, I don't know if this is a correct term, but econometric stats, hard data, as opposed to the sort of softer things that often govern decision making within the horse racing business. Do you think that's fair to say on both sides of the equation? Yeah, both things are true. First of all, we, you know, as far as like the economics and finance of, of, of the racetrack, I mean, we have the public establishing prices on uh, different outcomes uh, 
uh, on a daily basis, race by race, the public gets together, establish the prices, and ultimately the prices are really good, right? I mean, really good over the long over long stretches of time. I'm not saying that the market is by any means efficient, but six to one shots over the long run, right, tend to win, you know, adjusted for track takeout and everything, you know, what would be almost equivalent of one seventh of the time, right? So uh, the public is very good. The one sort of piece of information, the starting point of any handicapping is trying to, uh, you know, is looking at the tote board and, and gleaning from it what information you can. So there's a lot of economics and finance that goes on just right there with the tote board. And, and to me, that's one of the most interesting parts is watching price, understanding what price movements means, understanding, um, you know, when a horse is hot on the board or cold. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of obsessed up, obsessed with the tote board. And, you know, it was kind of one of my avenues in, in, you know, I was interested in racing and handicap as a kid, but as I got, as I, you know, as I got my PhD in economics and, and, and got more time and moved back to an area where racing was more prevalent, uh, you know, I realized that, that, you know, there's a sort of vast amount of research done in econ, psychology, and finance related to pricing and market efficiency. And then on the, on the other side, I agree with you that there's a lot, I don't think that, um, we do enough sort of institutional research on racing. Um, you know, I, there is, are there are things like the equine injury data ba- de- database and um, decisions are made off that, but you know, that data is not publicly available. So we basically have two or three researchers um, whose work is not being double checked, uh, who are making these broad decisions as part of, you know, ultimately taken up by HISA. Um, for racing. And so, you know, we've talked about this and been long-winded about data availability. Um, Even for my students, some of them who have computer programming backgrounds and want to do modeling, you know, they find themselves, uh, you know, drifting towards golf, for example, because it's easy to get golf data for free and they can build a model of golfers, right? And so, um, so I think there's a lot of ways that sort of from an institutional standpoint or even from a uh, you know, from sort of exposure standpoint, that 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 data data is important and just lacking um, in our industry. I don't want to make it seem that we're going to be going in these lectures that you're going to be presenting, not lectures, the interviews that you're going to be presenting. It won't be this uh, down the rabbit hole. Of yeah, not yet, not yet. I have I have uploaded lectures. I have quite a few of them, but they're not quite ready for public consumption yet. Yeah. One day down the road they will be, but, but uh, the interviews but not there yet. Interviews much more easy, not that what we've been saying is so highfalutin or whatever, but I mean, the interviews themselves are much more geared towards public consumption, I would say, than even the conversation we've been having. Yeah. I mean, the interviews should just be, uh, you know, standalone conversations with people at the racetrack geared towards, you know, geared towards handicapping, towards understanding the industry. Uh, uh, they're, they're evergreen content. So in most cases, we're not talking about handicapping. So we're not talking about handicapping particular races. And so I think, uh, again, even though, you know, I recorded all of these in the winter of, um, the winter spring of, of earlier this year, and we do talk a bit about Oaklawn with some of them, uh, you know, they should, they should, uh, they should still be topical to your listeners right now. Excellent. What's one thing that surprised you in any of the interviews you did? Just just something that that, that, that caught you a little off guard or, or, or made you, even at your level within the game, learn something? Well, the one thing I learned about myself is I'm extremely articulate, in, inarticulate in these interviews. And so through the editing process, so, so I'm both inarticulate and I talk really fast. And so I've learned how to edit. So I did a lot of editing of 
both my guests and me, but I would string together ums and run on sentences. And, and so I was hard to edit. I wish I could just sort of cut myself out. And some of my guests were really easy uh, to edit. And so I, I did quite a bit of editing. I don't know why I sort of got obsessed with it. And so that, I don't know if that's what you're, what you're asking in terms of what I've learned what I learned from it. But, um, and I, you know, the first, the first couple I did, especially with trainer Tom Bainberg and Kendrick Carmouche, uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't quite have the right uh, equipment. And so it's not as, uh, it's not going to be as, uh, listenable to your, uh, to your listener. It's going to be a little bit more difficult of a listen. I, you know, have like emails going off in the background, didn't have a headset. <laughs> I had some feedback on my interview with Tom Bainberg. Uh, it's still a really good interview, but it's it's got a little feedback. So I got a little bit better as the process went on. Um, but uh, but again, I'm you know I'm really thrilled with a lot of them. The interviews that I did with the interview I did with Randy Moss, uh, it was at night in Memphis, and he was in um, uh, he was in China for the Winter Olympics, and uh, he was up in the mornings. In fact, he was still making speed figures from Beijing. And so he was up in the morning working on his speed figures and I did my interview uh, and he was about to go uh, get, get ready for snowboarding at the winter Olympics. <laughs> That's great stuff. I'm really looking forward to diving back in. You shared some sneak uh, peeks with me or sneak listens. And I was unilaterally impressed by you and your guests. And I think it's something our listeners are going to be enjoying thoroughly. And there's a cool element here where we have uh, our friends over at Mill Ridge sponsoring, which is going to enable us to make a nice charitable donation as well to our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. So this is this is sort of win, 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 as far as I can tell. And content wise, you know, not as much stuff going on on the network in uh, well, November's still super busy, but as we get on to December and January, I think these are going to be some nice uh, treats and something that the listeners can look forward to every week. And I, and I think if you're down with it, Marshall, that's what we'll do. We'll drop one a week. It'll get us through the cold season, give us some of these great evergreen conversations with top level people in the business and, and it'll help us help us get through this part of the, you know, there's no off season in racing, but there, there certainly is a little bit of a lull post breeders cup and before the big run up of the triple crown. So I, I think this will fill in the gaps nicely if you're down with that plan. No, that sounds great. What were we thinking? We're thinking a, a Sunday night for our first drop. Yeah, I think Sunday's I think Sunday's good. Sunday night is probably really good. That that'll that'll give people something before we get our early week uh, content out. And then yeah, I mean, I think we'll just run we'll just run one a week until we until we get to, until we get through them. There's 12 in all, is that right? Well, there's 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 really 10, right? I've got two that are not, you know, I've got one I don't really have consent on uh, a computer player who didn't want to sort of have it fully released. And then I have another that's really more of just a jockey, inter- a, a trainer interview. I'd interviewed John Ortiz, but mostly about his horses that were running at Oakland. So I'm looking for a, a, a potentially another guest to talk about computer modeling, because I do think that's an important enough topic um, to cover. Um, if I can't do that, maybe I'll just talk about it myself. I, I've learned that uh, being the only one in the mic is a struggle for me, but we have 10 right now and, and I might add one or two more um, right. to sort of complete the set. I like the, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we did. We had that fun conversation uh, a while back at Equestricon where we talked about computer modeling and we got some nice feedback on that. So if you, if you want to go that way, let me be a resource. Really curious to, to get to re-listen to all of these. And I think people are really going to enjoy it. With that, Marshall, let's pivot to the other reason that you're here today. 
uh, I'm not sure if I have a commercial or not. If I, if I do, I'll, I'll probably just pop it in somewhere as I'm talking now. But I obviously wanted to bring you in as a past champion and someone who's so data-centric with uh, the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge plays being released. The BCBC plays being released, it was actually originally something that was done as a suggestion from a, a committee of players looking to um, just improve the contest a few years ago. You know, there was that very controversial running of the BCBC back in, in 2017. And one of the things that they thought from just an integrity point of view would be useful would be to release all these plays. And I have to say, I think it accomplishes that goal, but I think it accomplishes a lot more uh, in terms of letting us see how people approach this big contest and also to give us give us ideas, whether it's into the nitty gritty of how to construct tickets or the overarching strategy of the contest. I mean, this is just great data that we're not used to having from the horse player side of things. 100%. I think it's, it's fast. First of all, it's fa- just fascinating to see the impact of this contest. I mean, from the data I looked at there, you know, the, the players in the contest bet $7.2 million. Uh, you know, typical player would, you know, churn, $12,800 for a churn ratio of about 1.7. So for these contests, right, people are churning, turning over money uh, 1.7 times their bankroll. I, I, in many ways, there should be more of these, right? Uh, yeah. uh, the tracks are taking in their takeout from that. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a big windfall for the track. And of course, it's wonderful for the players, super competitive, Super exciting, and, and I can't wait to. I was a disaster this year, and had a lot of other things. I hate to make excuses, but but <laughs> but had had some distractions as well. But uh, it was a disaster this year. I'm looking forward to taking my shot again next year. I just wish I didn't have to wait a year. But again, it is it is sort of fascinating to take a deep dive into this stuff and uh, kind of see how other players approached it. Uh, see uh, you know see what the winners did and uh, see what other players do. Um, so it's uh, and who who other players liked ultimately. I think that that's right. You really get a sense of opinions in terms of the handicapping side, as well as all this other stuff. Two things I want to bring up before we get into the nitty gritty of the plays. One is things that are just totally different about a contest like this. One is this idea that it's a large sum of money. You got to put up 10 grand to play. 7,500 of that is live bankroll. And you can walk away with that money at any time. And that has a major, major effect, I would say, on how, I don't know, 90% of the players play the contest. And if that 90% is wrong, it's too low. And then the other point I want to make is because so many people, and I wish I had this number host fail for not tracking it down. So many people qualify. I really think that changes the mentality. There's not that many people in this contest who can do the mental jujitsu to ignore the fact that they can walk away with that money at every time. And The overall effect of these two things to me, and this is my most striking takeaway, Marshall, is just in theory. And again, I say this with all sympathy for the players because of the two economic factors that I just laid out, but insanely inefficient play if your goal is to win from the vast, vast majority of the field. I'd go even further than that, is that that there are probably 20% of the players who probably should sell their um, entry once they win it because I have their 58 players who didn't even recite, you know, didn't even recycle their money. Uh, a handful of them didn't even bet $6,000. So they just effectively, you know, started up a little bit and then stopped. Right. And so 
um, a Breeders' Cup entry, you know, may not be worth the full ten thousand dollars, but I would think on a secondary market you could almost get that kind of money, right? I bought a I bought a half entry from someone the year that I that won in twenty twenty, and um, uh, you know, I, I think I paid him four thousand dollars for five thousand dollars worth of an entry, and then I gave him the extra, I gave him a thousand back once I won. But I, if you 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 win the sort of a ten thousand dollar prize and you have seventy five hundred in money, and there are people who just didn't you know, use that bet a little bit and then stopped. Right. And so, um, and, and in that case, you can't hit the board. And so you're better off in selling it for 8,500 or 9,000 or whatever you can get. So no, I don't, I don't disagree with that. And I do think it's, it's a result of a lot of people who qualify. I think as you get sort of further up the, the food chain, you know, who puts themselves in a position to win, I do think it's a, it's a real small number of people. Now it's harder to tell, and um, I remember having this conversation with people before the, um, the the contest itself. Is this year there's a there was a real no man's land, um, kind of above forty grand, below a hundred grand, where it was really tricky to sort of figure out what to do at that point, uh, because it, it's it's really it's a challenge. It's it's a difficult decision to go all in on flatline, and I want to sort of get to Drew's decision in in just a second, but. Um, you know, below 40 grand and certainly for people, you know, in the, in the, you know, five to 10 to 15 to 20, it, it was, a, it, it wasn't as tricky a decision to maybe push their chips into the table and try to win. Once you get up into that no man's land, it, it's a lot trickier to potentially throw away that money on losing tickets. I think Drew's a good place to start. And I haven't, this is a question I should have asked him when we had him on here last week. I feel like flight line being flight line was why his strategy kind of made sense. The idea that you have this generational, multi-generational talent and that seductive idea, you know, if you, if you as a handicapper thought flight line was one to five going in, the idea that you could get, you know, if it goes wrong, if you win, I mean, obviously if it goes totally wrong, you lose, you lose whatever. I mean, I think you can live with that if you truly think this is, you know, course of a lifetime kind of stuff strategically to push all in. If it goes wrong, you end up with whatever two to one, five to two on this one to five shot. And if it goes right, you get nine to two on this horse. I mean, I get it. I I mean, I think it's interesting going through the plays. It's, it's fascinating to me how close he came not to winning, but I do I'm comfortable saying it was the correct strategy. Do you agree with that? Was this a good well, bet? Let, let's think about this. First of all, I want to emphasize that Drew had an amazing day. And if you look at his selections for ITM Plus, I'm an ITM Plus member. Proudly proudly, uh, proudly uh, joined day one, I think. Uh, yep. Drew uh, had as his top pick Cody's Wish Tuesday Elite Power and Modern Games. So hit four races in a row on his okay. ITM picks. And that $2 parlay is $511. So he was crushing it that day. Now, as to the flight line decision, I know that you know people will say he's turning 2 to 5 on flight line than 9 to 2. But I think it's important to remember that if he doesn't bet, he's getting 3 to 2 on his money. So one way to think about this is, is that um, flight line at 2 to 5, 2 to 5 shots win 58% of the time. Let's that it, based on sort of the amount bet on him, sort of 58% probability. Now you may think that's way too low is a 90% chance of winning, but for argument's sake, I'm going to stick with the 58% because the public is generally pretty good about these things over the long term. Sure. So if we assume that 
Flatline is a 58% chance of winning. Drew has a 58% chance of getting back, uh, you know, $549,000 and a 42% chance of zeroing out. Okay. Yep. And we would see if people would take that 58% chance of 549,000, uh, 42% chance of zero versus getting $245,000 guaranteed because he would have finished third. And uh, if he had just, if he had not even bet. Right. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people, you know, in terms of their risk aversion would take the 245 guaranteed over the 42% chance of going bankrupt, even in though the general for, public, almost everyone in the general yeah. public, it's 95% who would take that money and run. Yes. Well, and yes. And even though uh, the expected value, right. Of Drew's play was 318,000. So it was greater than the 245. Again, most people are risk averse. And so, um, and so I, I, you know, I think putting in that perspective, you makes you sort of realize that this was a, you know, this is a, just a, a big risk. It was a, a big risk that worked out. I also think it puts some other contest play in in uh, in perspective. The runner up, uh, Jim. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Vidic. How to pronounce his name. Vidic. Vidic. Anyway, yeah, he had he had a a great day. Uh, he hit the you know he he got his day going on Friday um, race four where where you know I actually. Am, Small, small part owner, 10-strike racing owns a small bit of giant mischief who beat Arabian Lion in that sort of stacked um, uh, uh, allowance race on the card. Uh, He hit the exact in that race in the trifecta. uh, And so, uh, you know, hit that for 21,000. In fact, he hit the try getting a 26 to 1 shot underneath. And then in the juvenile turf, uh, he hit the uh, he hit the trifecta Victoria Road over Silver Knot and got thirty nine to one shot underneath. So hit the trifecta in the, ju- in the juvenile turf for thirty four thousand dollars. So he gets to the classic with fifty five thousand dollars, right? And the sort of question is, you know, what do you need to get to to win? And Drew at that point has ninety seven. And I, you know, the the thing is, you could look at it and say, well, you know, Drew could be going all in, might get to 140, but I don't know that I don't know that you would necessarily think that when you're playing from his position, right? So, you know, I wonder if he I wonder if the number he thought wasn't as high as to what Drew ended up doing, right? I mean, it was a very gutsy move. Uh Drew's a first time player, kind of, you know, known through the ITM circles, but kind of unknown, right? And so um what Jim did is he hit the flatline Olympiad exacta for 35 grand, right? He had $2,000 exact and then hit a $500 try, a spready try, where he tossed life is good and hit the try for 41 grand. So that left him with 124. Now he only bet $8,500 on the race, right? So he only risked 8,500. So he would have dropped himself down to 47 had he lost, but he hit both his exacta and his trifecta, um, to get him in the second place. And presumably maybe he thought he would win with that number, except for drew it over the top with his win bet. What's interesting furthermore, is he tossed life is good from his try. He'd been successful with his tries earlier, getting a long shot underneath. In this case, Taiba um, finishing third, only slightly, um, uh, uh, you know, slightly diminished his payout. For example, if he'd bet, 
he bet a twenty he bet twenty five hundred dollars total on the try. If he had just pushed that into an exacta, that had pushed his total up, but it wouldn't have been enough to beat Drew. What I hear when I hear those plays, though, and, and I don't mean to be critical of of Jim, but like he's he to be that right. I mean, he probably has to bet what another another thousand, like another fifteen hundred, certainly to 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 get the win. I mean, I guess he was. Ta- I'm just assuming he was targeting an amount, but I don't know. For me, and you're right. I mean, it's easier for me to say knowing Drew, knowing what Drew's attitude was going in. But I think if that's just a stranger on the board. I would have still, if somebody asked me what number should I target, I'd say, look at the leader. What is the leader all in flight line pay? And, and what is that? And what is that number? And, and that's, and that, that would have been what I would have suggested somebody target. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's what I would have been thinking at the time too, that you probably needed to get to 150 to, to block him out. I don't know. Again, uh, he did have $2,000 in additional bets. So, uh, you know, I, I guess it's it, it is it is that debate on whether he left the putt short or whether he was just sort of everything was right and and true. Just incredible handicapping. I mean, it's just just absurdly good and and very sharp play. I think leaving life is good out just because even though he's you know in theory the second best horse in the race as we talked about many times, there wasn't a lot in the way of situations where he was going to be able to win that race. Um, so so I mean, all credit for an incredible job of handicapping. I just. Um, and, and you're not going to feel too bad for somebody who walked with as much money as he did either. But it just, in theory, um, was that an optimal play to win the contest? I would have to say it was not. Yeah, it's just hard to know. Like, I, like if I had 97 grand and were in Drew's position, and I've thought about this a lot, I don't think I would have done what he did. Because what would, you, what would your alternative? Well, first of all, I would assume that it's either going to go four, one or four, six, right? Either you're going to have Taiba or Epicenter in second. And in those situations, he's going to lose. Right. Right. And so I would have been more defensive in terms of playing large exactas with Taiba and Epicenter. And then I would have, you know, maybe, maybe $10,000 exactas on each would push my number up to where they couldn't pass me. And then if I lost, I'd still have 77 grand. Now maybe I need, need to make them a little larger. Maybe I'd throw in the four, the, maybe I'd throw in tries with them in each spot um, just because I thought those were the most likely outcomes. And if I missed, I was still going to finish fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, right? Versus the the 58% chance, the 42% chance that I'd zero out. I do think in the real world, as I completely accept the math behind your your number and your rationale, but I do think that the, that his horse player attitude I mean, I think if you'd ask what take his money, his things out of it, what what chance Flightline had to had to lose that race? I mean, twenty, ten. I think that's where his head. Oh no, no, and I I don't, I don't dislike. I I mean, he, you know, he made the right. I mean, he made this the winning decisions. I'm just not sure I could have made the decision, and I don't know how many people in this contest could have made that decision. That's why, again, that's why I talked about this that that sort of fifty to hundred range being a real no man's land in terms of what to do. Um, because it's not, you know, the, the thing is Drew doesn't win if Tyba finishes second and right. it's not clear he wins. If, so in, no, I'm sure Epicenter talking. second, I mean, just from the play, I didn't go through it the degree that you did, but I saw some stuff that I think the Epicenter second would have leapfrogged him. And we know for a fact, Sean Borman ends up with about 200,000 if, if, uh, yeah. Taba. So here are, the, here are the numbers. If, if Taba finishes second, Sean Borman wins and, um, and he, with 168 grand. 
there were no one had the uh, if Taba finished ahead of um, Olympiad, no one had the uh, four one seven trifecta enough to really make a dent in things, and so that um, so Sean wins with Flatline over Taba. Flatline over Epicenter is a little bit trickier. So if Flightline over Epicenter hits, then Scotty McKeever, who was just, I mean, he was the second bit, Scotty, I mean, Scott had a great contest. I mean, he, you know, to finish with zero, hopefully he was betting money on the side because uh, he had 105K in handle. He was the second biggest handle behind Drew. He hit Forte. He hit Goodnight Olive. He hit the Tuesday in Italian uh, exacta. He hit Malathot. And these were all, you know, these were all flinging some serious money. And so he got to the classic with 32 grand. Um, he had some big misses too. He had $10,000 to win on nation pride. He had 10 grand on golden pal with some other horses. Uh, but he got to the classic with 32 grand. He had $14,701 on the flatline epicenter exacta. That would only get him to 66 grand. So that wouldn't, that wouldn't do it. I actually don't quite know what the exacta paid, but it was somewhere between nine and $10. Um, so it, it wouldn't have got him enough. So he needed Taiba, he needed Taiba, Hot Rod, Charlie, or Rich Strike in third. If any of those happen, he wins the contest. Uh, the Flatline Epicenter over Olympiad, um, I still believe that uh, Drew wins, right, in that case. Interesting. I, I thought I saw some big exactas. Um, with epicenter in second, but I, you know, it's, it's all, it's all kind of a blur. I would trust your, I would trust your info way more, way more than mine. I would have to go through it again. And if a listener sees one, that's not, that's uh, that I missed, um, then uh, maybe so it's a little, it was somewhat tricky to go through these and try, kind of go through these and figure out exactly because of the different, the different ways they designated the different ways people, you know, made key bets. And, and, uh, and, you know, I, I did see someone who, 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 uh, box show bets. I'd never seen that before. Yeah, so. what does that even mean? I'm, I don't know, but it was uh, a new and different strategy. Let's so leave it at that. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Is there is that like playing out? The only thing that pops in my head is that something trying to somebody trying to be a real wise guy and play flight line out, like betting everything else to show or something. No, it, 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 it that wasn't. wasn't it. So something, something else, and something else entirely. What of some of the other top finishers and how how they they approached it? Did did anyone else who finished high up um, have a a, a a chance to win, or was it more people who'd had good tournaments and were laying up? So. There were there were a couple. Of, you know, like if we look at the people who really bet heavily on the classic, the top seven people in terms of the amount they bet on the classic, uh, Drew bet the most. Drew bet ninety seven grand and uh, and obviously finished first. Sean bet the second most, uh, bet thirty thirty two grand and had uh, missed with the four one exacta. Scotty McKeever bet the third most, missed with the four six exacta. And then after that, Sean es- Espino bet flatline to win so he shoved all in like 29 grand flatline the win he went from 20th to 14th john hewitt went all in the place about 28 grand went from 21st to 10th uh thomas coleman uh bet all in on epicenter so had uh you know 20 20 maybe it was 27 28 grand on epicenter and as uh and he so he would have been the winner had epicenter 
uh, one. He bet twenty nine grand, twenty nine grand on Epicenter, and then Brad Allhouse bet twenty six thousand four hundred dollars on Flatline to win in place. Missed a few exactors, but he moved from eleventh to eighth. So the people who bet a lot of money, uh, they were either uh, Sean, Sean Scott McKeever, and Thomas Coleman were going for the win. The others underneath who were betting twenty plus on Flatline were trying to trying to hit the board. The other sort of big movers late in the contest were people who, you know, hit some form of the exacta or trifecta. So like Vic Stoffer um, hit the exacta and try. Jeff Sandler hit the uh, exacta and try. Um, Jeff's was somewhat interesting because he, um, I think it was him who, uh, Jeff Jeff hit the five hundred dollar exacta and five hundred dollar trifecta, and so got back fifty grand, and then he left five thousand dollars unbet, right? So he actually had six grand going to the classic, bet five hundred dollar exacta, five hundred try, hit both, right, and then finished with fifty five grand to so move up to sixth. And so, I mean, again, you could argue that 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 he left the putt short too, given that he had. That he had such insight into the classic. If he'd bet, yeah, three times, you know, if he'd bet fifteen hundred on each, he wins the contest, right? right. Um, uh, Dave Shenvert uh, went all in uh, on the classic and um, uh, uh, bet uh, eleven hundred and thirty-one dollar trifecta four over seven over one eight. So that's flatline over Olympiad over Taiba and. Um, Rich Strike, if Rich Strike finished third, uh, he wins the contest. Wow. So so those are the ones that kind of, uh, you know, jumped out at me is, is really is, uh, you know, some of the big movers. I, I think there are others that are worth talking about. The, you know, the other uh, other sort of big handle person that the, in terms of the top handle uh, at uh, for the NHC, uh, Dave Portnoy just bet a, a ton of money. We got to talk about his... Portnoy. He's on my list. I mean, w- do you have the, in front of you where he was at the end of day one? I don't, but he had maybe a combined 110 grand. Correct. And and he was on fire. I mean, he, and he was hitting stuff down card. So on um, one of his entries, uh, he hit the marathon for forty grand, he had a five hundred dollar win bet on next, and then had a thousand dollar exacted next over Haywood's Beach. On both of his tickets, uh, he crushed the uh, juvenile turf. In fact, Portnoy looked like a turf player. Really, uh, he had <laughs> five thousand dollars to win on Victoria Road. On one of his tickets, a seven hundred dollar exacta. So he hit that race for forty grand. So he was in incredible position after Friday. How did on, it all go wrong? Well, on Saturday. On uh, his on one of his tickets, he went uh, effectively all in on Highfield Princess. So bet thirty five thousand five hundred on her. If she yeah. wins, he gets back one hundred fifty six grand and probably wins the contest. So on his second ticket, he fired away. He had a um, nine thousand dollars win exactas on Highfield Princess. He had a Modern Games Nest double uh, that was about ten grand, and then he got to the turf. And what's interesting about the turf is he was all over Highland Chief at 26 to 1. And so he had three grand to win on Highland Chief. He played some exactas with Highland Chief over Warlike Goddess and Nation's Pride and then flipped in the other direction where if any of those come in, so if Highland Chief wins 
Warlike Goddess, Warlike Goddess or Nations tried to finish second. Or if you flip it the other way, uh, you know, he gets over 200 grand. Hell, his his Highland Chief over Warlike Goddess exactly would have given him 414 grand. So yeah, I don't um, like this betting from a strategic point of view. And I, and I think no, that's that was probably, probably on a 26 to one shot being just a little bit. I mean, too, a 26 you know, to one shot, Marshall, you could put a zero on the end for what price that horse should have been too. Well, I, yeah, again, that's a, it's, it's a turf race and it, you know, I wouldn't have known if it was two to one or 260 <laughs> to one. So, so for me having no feel for it, but it, you know, again, it was, he was over aggressive in parts and certainly there, um, there he was. I, I don't, I don't, his high field princess opinion and the fact that he was trying to win it. No, I get sprint, that one. No, I, 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 I like, I like that one. I mean, that, that, that's a place, that's a place you take a shot. I mean, for me, it was too chaotic of a rate. I mean, I wouldn't have taken that shot, but I, I get that. And, and that's, that's the right kind of target to hit for. I just don't, for the same reason, if you're trying to win, I, I don't see leaving the putt short. I, I don't, I don't, I also don't see why you have to, you know, well, it's just inefficient. I mean, there's so much money available if you spread that money around a little bit more, rather but in than the, ending up with something that's going to give you 400,000, which you don't need. In the, in the grand scheme of inexcusable plays, I think this actually ranks very low though, if you look at the contest. And I do think, you know, I, I would I mean, also what say, you mean by that? well, I, I think there's a lot, if, if you sort of go through the, if you go through people's BCBC plays, there's a lot, there's a lot more real, you know, a lot more spready, inefficient. I mean, there's, you know, th- there's some, there's some really questionable decisions people made. We I mean, don't even they, have to name names because I don't want to pick on anybody, but if you could, a, a specific example, I think would be helpful. Well, there was someone who went, who bet all, all, all in the try in the classic. Um, well, that's, that, that's the idea I was talking about before about maybe somebody uh, thinking, Trying to come well, then up you with get, a cover, then you get rid of way. then you drop flatline. Anyway, yeah. I, like I, I feel right, like right, that, right. like the one thing that so Portnoy may have been too narrow and too aggressive, but I think a lot of people's play was much too broad, right? right. Much too spready, uh, you know, to where when they hit, they're basically, you know, you know, they're basically getting even money or three to two on on a shot because they've spread in so many different directions, right? And so. You know, look, I, I think Portnoy's got. I think there's. So he's going to win one of these in the next five years. I mean, he is going. You know, I know at least he's been speed and fade in this event for the last few years. But the way he plays, um, and as aggressive he is, as he is, and he was quite good. I mean, he hit a lot of bets. He had a great Friday. Um, he's got one of these with his name on it. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Just if if we're talking about a world in which we think of these 500 entries. I'm not kidding. I don't think more than 25. Set aside a certain amount for randomness and somebody just cold cocking a, a random try. Like, I don't know what, what percent you want to put away, put a, put aside for randomness, maybe, maybe 10%. So I guess that brings 50 entries that could win randomly. But like beyond that, I think it's 20 entries, 25 entries. So if he's one of them, it's not, it's not that crazy to think that he'd, have a very good shot at one if he's willing to learn from his mistakes and realize you could just make that aggressive play with that much money heading into day two, pick one logical horse, you know, I feel princess one makes sense, but then like make the other one modern games or a nation's pride rebels, romance, Dutch or horses that actually have a chance. And you know, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to see the path to victory from there. Yeah. I mean, he had 13 grand at that point. I mean, but so, so he didn't have, you know, he, he sort of, 
but he didn't have to take away. all the chances. Is my point is like look at look at how efficient you know just even in the the last the last four winners. You look at just how efficient the plays are and the idea of trying to minimize. It's so interesting. It's it's a little bit like poker, I suppose. There's the aggression, sure, but there's also a tight aggressiveness that I feel like we've seen in the in the winners' plays over the last few years, where there's no. There's no money being fired willy nilly, and if you go into day two with over with over a hundred, it just it just I don't know what what you described to me felt a little too felt a little too spready. Well, he had ninety five hundred on Modern Games Nest, and that would have gotten him to to fifty, right? And so and, and with with his other bankroll, he he had about sixty five, and that would have given him a shot. I suppose he wouldn't have squandered the money away in the turf like he did. But again, he had thirteen grand. He probably you know. If he loved Highland Chief, even if he just bets that horse to win and backs down the amount and he, and he, and he misses, it only gets him about five to seven grand in the classic. And he probably just doesn't have enough to, you know, probably doesn't have enough to work with. Has to try to pick the tri cold at that point, probably. Yeah, at that point. Is that, at that point, is, is sort of what it takes. Yeah. So it's, um, fa- it's, it's fascinating. What else did you see looking, looking down these plays? What else, what else stood out to you? What else can we, can we learn from? Well, I think that's, you know, I think that's most of it. I do, you know, I do want to dig a little bit deeper in that, uh, you know, sort of Olympiad, I think, was the interesting result, right? Because he was kind of the forgotten horse. People assumed that he would be closer to the front and sort of, uh, you know, get, you know, basically be eviscerated when Flatline went by. And so when the races run, it was effectively two races. It was Flatline against Life is Good, and then it was everyone else running for third. And that put him in a much stronger position. And uh, I think in the contest, you know, there's a heavy reliance on Epicenter and Taiba. And so they were probably, you know, they were probably much shorter in the contest yes. because that's, that's the direction that people went. Now, it still somewhat surprised me that, that Drew, the scenario where Drew wins is actually much more likely because it, he has most of flatline he's only really loses if flatline or over Tyba or flatline over epicenter with Tyba hot rod charlie and rich strike in third right so he does have a lot of ground covered with his win bet um but those other horses uh underneath in the exacta sort of had i think had more value uh and there were people who took stands against flatline uh you know, hard to sort of dig down in the deep since Flatline won by so much. But there were people who took stands. But the only one I think really, you know, sort of had the winning play was was Thomas Coleman with his win bet on Epicenter. It's really interesting to see that 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 does surprise me. I would have figured somebody would have also had the Taba win covered, but not from what you were seeing. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to look again. But I didn't see a giant. You know, I didn't see a giant win bet on Taba. Yeah, you'd think that you'd think that one would have uh, you'd think that one would have leapt out at least to you know if it if it was there. Yeah, I just I figured I don't know. Again, I th- I was thinking of it wrong. I thought it was very light. I I thought people would put the one thirty nine you know that total as the target and and shoot from there. And then some part of me when talking to Drew and, you know, he apparently quietly on the inside got mad at me when I said to him, I think you're probably second or third. I just figured, you know, what would it have taken? It, it felt like Olympiad was the value. Um, 
with the idea that he wouldn't, that he could be ridden cold. And he was just such a big price on the board. And what would it have been about an 8,000 exacta for seven? I just figured somebody would have taken a shot and, uh, and, and covered that thing. I would, you know, for, for Drew's sake, I'm extremely happy to be, to be wrong, but I just thought that was the way people were going to look at the world. And for various reasons, it's pretty clear that they didn't. Yeah. There are a few people who did some of them again, arguably left the putt short, uh, but there were there were a relative there were relatively few people who did, and this is sort of down the line in the contest. They, they weren't people who hit for small amounts to to suddenly hit the board, right? They were only uh, you know one, two, three, four, five, you know six, seven, seven sort of big movers through that exacta through that trifecta um, in the contest, and there were some you know like some 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 tough misses here the. Uh, there was a contest player who had 41,770 going into the last race that a $10,000 flatline epicenter exacta finished with 31,770 and finished 21st out of the money. Right. Um, oh. There was another, another player. This one, I can't sort of figure it out. Dylan Rossi, he must've forgotten about his ticket because he would have finished seven, uh, would have finished 18th. But uh, he stopped betting, got a ten thousand dollar penalty. Get stopped betting after like the the, um, the 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 turf sprint, and so got a penalty which dropped him from thirty four thousand dollars to twenty four thousand dollars and finished off the board. So that that was a a twelve thousand five hundred dollar mistake. And what's weird on his other ticket, he bet through the tenth race and then ran out of money. So it's just <laughs> it's like I wonder if he just lost track of his second ticket. Yeah, so, got, um, something got mixed up there for so, sure. So, so there, you know, there's some there's some mix-ups. I, I I do think that this is uh you know, it is notable, like like we've talked about earlier, the the you know, what it take, you know, the number of people who could potentially win this contest were sort of willing to sort of lose their money, willing to treat it like monopoly money and lose everything and go broke. Uh, that's a fairly small number of people. And then I think even the people who are willing to take the risk to get into the top 20 is fairly small, right? There are plenty of people who, unless they get things going, won't even get there. And so, uh, but it's a contest that a lot of people qualify for. And then a lot of people who qualify for want to protect their money. Right. It changes the dynamic completely. And we don't talk a lot about betting in this um, sport. There's a lot on handicapping and, and all the books you read out there on handicapping. And there's no you know, no real, not a lot of discussion about betting. There's no real, not a lot of sort of, uh, there's not a sort of fundamental theories about it or ways to bet that are talked about. And so, um, and so I do think it's sort of worth going through this for, for any player to get a, I, I think it really humanizes everybody. So if you're intimidated by all these people who you see dominating these contests and these people who are making serious bets, the, 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 there's a lot of betting that that is, uh, you know, just overly spready. And just if you do that on a day to day basis, I think you'd be you're just in real trouble, right? Because the takeout will just eat you alive. Yeah, that's that's one thing that you notice for sure in Drew's plays is he's not exposing himself to unnecessary, not letting the takeout get him unnecessary times. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's efficient, and and that that's a potential takeaway. What about when you look at these plays in aggregate, what is your thought about a particular wagering pool you might be drawn to in future runnings of the BCBC or, or does it not, does your brain not really go in that direction? No, I do think, you know, I, I, I think a lot about the, these 
you know, Jonathan and then Drew, Drew did this. A lot of these players who play these rolling doubles to minimize wrist and give them a little bit of leverage. Again, the nice thing about doubles in um, in horse racing, right, is that, that uh, when you when you bet a double, it's, it typically pays 1.2 times parlay, right? And, and sometimes the Breeders' Cup throws that out of whack because people make crazy huge doubles and that'll throw everything out of whack. But even... You know, even the you know the big Friday miss double that Jonathan had, it didn't that the double still would have paid more than the parlay, right? And so, um, so I've thought more about that because it does seem that people are able to sort of, you know, increase their their bankroll without taking as much risk. Uh, you know, I've always thought that this is such a great pool to be you know precise with your win bets or precise with your exactives, um, but. Uh, uh, you know, this year in the Breeders' Cup, in the Breeders' Cup, once I once I uh, lost out, uh, you know, I played straight supers and I played twenty five hundred dollars worth of straight supers in in the classic, right? Hoping that it'd be some logical outcome that would get me fifteen to one. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's the right play. Uh, what what worked for the runner up? It seems like a lot of his hits were getting you know playing logical exactas with bombs underneath. It didn't quite work in the classic, but didn't cost him all that much money either. Uh, I, I'm typically, you know, he he didn't he he spread didn't overly spread, so he would he would use six horses in third, and in each case got a nice long shot to to juice up his try. Uh, I I do you know the all button is never button to use in the try because the you're just better off betting the exactive. But if you can sort of isolate long shots you like and they do show up, um, that can pay out. I'm much more if I bet the try ten the bet straight favorites and, and, you know, hope for, you know, like, you know, bet a $5,000 straight try and hope it comes up chalky. So I don't know. I don't know if any of it will change the way I play, but it is interesting looking at, you know, not only the, the, um, the bets people made, but sort of the, the, the thinking people made the horses they liked uh, versus sort of what was the public chatter. You mentioned about tracks wanting to do more, of this now, part of it's impossible because I think some of the reason why this works, some of the reasons why the doubles are paying more than the parlay still is just the tremendous liquidity, the field size, the quality of racing, which obviously we can't replicate on a on a week to week basis in in the sport. But still, you feel like even with the proliferation of live bankroll opportunities, racing isn't making enough of them. Well, they like there there are quite a few of them, right? Naira Betts has one nearly every weekend. Express Bet. Uh, you know, sponsors a bunch of them nearly every weekend. So, you know, almost every weekend you can find one. But I, I you know, for most tracks, I'd, I'd follow that model. There's still not one at Oakland Park, right? My home track. And it, to me, it's it's free money because people will play. It'll create churn. Um, it's our chances as horse players to have our name in lights. Because otherwise, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pursuit that you're doing on your own. It's kind of against the code to brag about a big score, right? Or to red board or to do any of that. So, you know, this is the one chance to sort of prove yourself and to, to, to get, to get recognized among your peers. Um, and it offers incredible opportunity, right? Because generally these, these tournaments are, you know, takeout free in that all your entry fees, you know, put into the prize pool. Right. And so they're, you know, your, your bets themselves, your bankroll is exposed to takeout, but the, the, the tournament part of it, uh, uh, that isn't 
right? And some some tournaments add money, right? Like the Naira Betts Belmont Stakes contest, there's $50,000 of added money. And so all that encourages, you know, all that encourages uh, betters to, to play, to churn their money, which, which you know, goes to the track, goes to the horsemen. Uh, and, and so I would, I would have them all the time. I would have, you know, I'd, I'd have a low rollers breeders cup contest. Uh, I could, I'd have low rollers every weekend. I'd have some low roller on track contests. I'd do a lot of that. If I ran a racetrack, I'd have these all the time. Here's my add on to what you're saying. I think having them is great, but the way we have them now, there's not enough that rise to the level of majors for me. I mean, Keeneland does a great job in spring and fall rising to the level of majors, but you know, to try to make this calendar make more sense where the, the weekly ones are great, but have them lead to some sort of grand slam of type events, ma- majors. I mean, that's the word I keep coming back to where, you know, you can feature the product on its best day and, and really get the recognition for the player, allow the player to be able to bet into more liquid pools. And, and, you know, I mean, the model is here. We, we, we've seen the model. We see how it works. We see how it benefits the game. It's an incredible amount of handle um, that was generated by the BCBC in terms of the overall, um, certainly the on-track handle, but the handle in general, like it's, it's right here. And, you know, as a guy, I get frustrated sometimes Marshall, cause I just feel like I've been banging the drum, offering free consulting to various racetracks on this stuff for, for a number of years. And, and for whatever reason, uh, haven't been able to, to get at the next level, but we've also been pretty busy creating this media company and whatnot. Hopefully there'll be an opportunity to dip our toe back in the contest space because, I just think it's something that's so good for the game in so many, uh, so many different ways. And, and I do feel like if nothing else, looking at these BCBC plays should make people feel a little bit less intimidated about what it necessarily takes to get the job done. And I'm very confident in saying in all of advantage play, I'm not sure there's a better opportunity than the Breeders' Cup betting challenge for someone who's willing to treat it like monopoly money because of all the baked in um, inefficiencies we were discussing about number one, probably being the amount of people who qualify. Do you, would you say that's, is that overstating what a great opportunity on a dollar for dollar basis for an advantage type player? The BCBC is. Yeah. The, 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 the qualifiers make a huge difference in the fact that the bankroll is so big, right? There, there are plenty of people in a $300 bankroll Naira contest will go all in and won't even think about it. And just sort of, if they lose, they walk away, they do something else. Right. But in this contest, um, I mean, it takes real stones to do what Drew did. Um, and, the, you know, and not just what Drew did, what, you know, Sean did, Scotty McKeever did, Thomas Coleman did, you know, basically, you know, chucking it all in to try to win the thing. And so that's, you know, that in part is what the $10,000 number does. So you got half the people who qualified, um, you know, half the people who qualified for this, probably in some large subset of those um, you know, are, are very risk averse of their money. And then, and then you've got, you know, uh, just very few who are willing to sort of do what, what Drew did and some others did here sort of going for broke. And, um, and that, you know, that does offer value if you're willing to do it. And if, if the $10,000, if you're not sort of willing to, to make those kind of bets, this is a tough contest to play. Right. And, um, and there's so much value that's offered on the Breeders' Cup, on betting the Breeders' Cup itself is I wouldn't necessarily tie yourself down to having to play this contest or feeling like you should. I, the first time I played the BCBC was a, was a disheartening experience because I played at Keeneland the year American Pharaoh won. I had a good day. I went all in on Run Happy. I got to the Classic. 
I, I shoved all in on the classic. Uh, I knew I, I knew America. I was confident American Pharaoh would win, and so I played a bunch of straight exactus and straight tries. And then I finished with zero. hadn't done any side betting, and so I'm you know driving home from Keeneland. Like, what the hell just happened? I lost ten grand, and I had a great weekend, and somehow have nothing to show for it except for this minus ten, you know, this minus ten by my name. And so I don't know that at that point, you know, I, I was sort of in the right headspace to be playing it. Uh, you know, now I bet on the side. So when things go wrong, I, they're tweaking and be catastrophic. Right. right. So, no, I think that, I think that makes sense. And it's obviously, it gets down to wagering personality. And, but I also think that there's the idea of, you know, the rules are very clear about what collusion is and what collusion isn't now. It's not collusive to have 10 friends put up a thousand and have one person run the entry. There's nothing again that, that, that that's encouraged, frankly. So if, Given the size of the opportunity, I would suggest that more people in a non-collusive way, you know, like I said, the cleanest, easiest way to do it is you get, you know, 10 people on one entry or whatever it is and and try to take advantage of these big of these big opportunities. So you're not, you know, the analogy about uh, taking a knife to a gunfight. The only other thing I'll say is, especially if you qualify, I do think there's a logic to just play the way you were going to play and don't, you don't have to shoot for a top three spot look to get into the lower rungs. You're still participating in the prize pool. You know, you're not just necessarily, I, I think you're right. If you're just flop, if you're just in there and you're flopping around and you have no chance to even get in the prize pool, you're better off probably selling that entry. But I do think you could take a strategic approach to target, say an NHC seat, betting what you were going to bet anyway in the course of the weekend. And that would be another way to use the tournament. Even though I feel like from an EV point of view, all the value really is at the top. I do think there's more than one way to approach the BCBC where you'd still be getting your money in good. Yeah, you're still going to have to day, have a day where you get five times your bankroll to probably get that BC, uh, that NHC seat. So, um, yeah, if, if things work out and, and, and you're, you're willing to bet that kind of money to get there. The thing is, if, if you get the shakes betting $1,000 on a horse, then you're probably better off just selling your entry, right? Because it's there's it seems improbable that you're going to get to $37,000 without making a sizable bet. It is interesting. I'm not surprised at all that the top pr- scores have gone up. There was that great thread on Twitter from, from Tyler Wisman that I'm sure you saw about that. But I didn't realize the bottom had gone up that much. When I was making that point about playing for the lower rungs. I was thinking it was two, two and a half still. It's really five. That is, that is surprising to me how the, the bottom end of the, of the money has gone up so much. I don't, I totally get the logic why the top end has, but I don't really get the logic why the bottom end of the money has gone up that much. Well, I just, I think players have gotten better. Right. And so, um, and so if there are, you know, if, if, there are only a certain number of players who play to win, and now that's, those scores have gotten outrageous, right? There are plenty of players who are out, who are out there playing to hit the board. And, um, you know, we're able to string together good days. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, 20th place to get in the money was 32 grand. To get an NHC seat was 37 grand. Those are real numbers, yeah, right? Those that. are real. I mean, you know, those are, those are real numbers. Three players over 100 grand. Right, five over over eighty grand. I mean, that's those are those are big numbers, and it's just impressive when you sort of take a step back and realize that you know you got five people who are getting more than ten times their bankroll. Um, sort of remarkable. 
It really is. It, this has been a great and illuminating discussion. We, we only have a couple minutes left, Marshall, but I know you did a ton of work on this, and I'm guessing you have some notes. Anything you wanted to get to that we haven't gotten to yet, another player to highlight or, or strategy to speak of? No, we we got to everything uh, everything we needed to. Again, I just uh, you know uh, uh, it is it's it's amazing to go through these lists and, and work through people's plays, see who they like. I would just recommend it to everybody to to sort of uh, to take a, to take a look at what's there um, and uh, to sort of work to, to to work their way through some of these handicappers and see what they're thinking, see how they express their bets, uh, see how their decisions were made. Um, uh, it is, is I think really illuminating. It, it's a really way you can sort of learn, uh, you know, learn uh, about sort of what works and what, do, you know, ultimately what doesn't work. Spreading too much being at the top of that list. Uh, where can folks find the plays? Is it right on the breederscup.com website slash BCBC or is there a better? Yeah, place? it's, it's, it's uh, through the website uh, under breeders cup betting challenge, right next to the, right next to leaderboard is wagers by player. Perfect. I, I can't let you get out of here, though, without publicly thanking you for uh, naming this horse after me, Marshall. Looms boldly. What fun that was at uh, at Aqueduct on Saturday, seeing him. He looked so good in the paddock team in New York. Um, Dustin and the Bradcox team have done such a great job. Great ride from Manny Franco. Uh, I know you've been very involved with this with this family. Is this one ahead of schedule as far as you're concerned? Are you surprised by by how good he's been? Well, his family has always been early. In fact, they peaked early. Uh, and, and he's gotten a little bit less buzz than a lot of the others. His sibling, Critical Value, was a stakes winner at two. There was a lot of buzz and steam engine when he, uh, when he was a maiden. Whittington Park broke his maiden at, uh, at, on Travers Day um, by five lengths. And so as far as his family's concerned, they've all been early. The problem is most of his family, they've all been early and they've never really gone on. So they've not improved. So we are hopeful, have our fingers crossed that that he will continue to get better. He ran a 70 buyer. What's interesting about him, and, and this, again, Looms Bonely broke his maiden in, this, in a New York bred uh, uh, maiden special weight on Saturday. Uh, what's interesting about him is there was not a lot of buzz about him into his first race. He wasn't, he was kind of dead on the board for Brad Cox horse. We hadn't heard a lot about him from Brad. Uh, Brad had really, you know, the siblings that Brad had had, Brad was pretty effusive talking about them for their first races. And and so we were kind of, I was extremely pessimistic about Looms Boldly. And I was worried because you were there and we had a, three of our other partners were there. I'm like, well, you know, let's hope he does some running. And then, you know, he got out on the lead and I was pretty excited. Then it looked like, it looked like they weren't coming back to him. And it turned out his maiden race is really outstanding. The pace is really quick and he just barely got beat by a horse. And then, you know, as negative as I am about things, I thought, well, the other two-year-old maiden special weight on the same day was 18 points faster. He was in the slow division and uh, we're still in trouble. And and I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't think we're going to win on Sunday. I was really nervous. Didn't want to say anything. And then boom, he looks great on Sunday. So who knows? Maybe he'll keep defying expectations. I would think we've not talked to Brad yet, but I would think the, the Rego park, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. This Rego Rego park, uh, early January, a six and a half furlong New York bread stakes race, or a, I don't know when they start riding state bread. A other thens for two year olds or early three year olds. 
Um, but that's probably the next stop and we'll, we'll see how far he can take, can take us, but it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's obviously a, a privilege to have you involved. We've gotten so much free publicity from <laughs> you and you and Jonathan, uh, that, uh, that, uh, it's, it was totally, uh, you totally merited a horse named after you. And I'm glad the horse is able to do some running because there's nothing like getting a horse named after you that never makes it to the racetrack or is a, ends up being a, uh, you know, a maiden 15 at, uh, at Charlestown. Hey, the tribute is is much, much appreciated, and the rest of it's all gravy. What a fun ride it's been. And thanks to everybody out there on social media sharing congrats and, uh, and, and passing along words publicly and privately. What a, what a fun run. And, you know, it, it's one of these things about, about racing, Marshall, and you know this is, as well as anyone. The best thing about it is the friends you meet along the way. And I'm uh, blessed to have you and, and Clay among them and appreciate all your support, not just in this matter, not just on this show today, but in life in general. So thank you for, for your time and support. And obviously we're going to have you back on uh, this weekend to, to launch the, the interview series. And we look forward to that as well. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. I hope everyone enjoys these uh, interviews. I did. I had a great, had a great amount of I had great fun doing them. Um, I hope you all, I hope you all enjoy them. We'll thank Marshall Graham one more time. We'll thank Jonathan Wong one more time. We'll thank our founding partners, including 10 Strike Racing, where we always love to root for the purple and black around here. Also, Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, who will be beneficiaries of the Marshall Graham Interviews series. If you want to help and support the great work they do, trfinc.org slash players is the link to check out. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge champion, Drew Coatney. Our chief, isn't that amazing? Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatel. May you win all your photos.